It's Friday, October 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I've been thinking about the left. Try not to think about them too hard. Though on this, the International Day of Jihad, a call that has not fallen on entirely deaf ears throughout the world. In my city, it is hard to dismiss all the calls of the left. Dan Dresner, Tufts political scientist, tries to dismiss the calls of the left that align with Hamas. College students taking to the quad in every Ivy League school chanting for the destruction of Israel. No biggie. Deans routinely forced to re-clarify their original comments because they found it a little too difficult to say without ambiguity that the slaughter of civilians by Hamas is actually quite wrong as it happens. Flyers depicting the means of murder, i.e. paragliders, calling leftist protesters to come out and chant. It's just good branding, people. To quote, Dan Dresner, in his essay, A Brief Note Regarding the Public Musings of College Students. How brief? Well, it's on the subhead. For the love of God, stop paying attention. Here is the first graph. Note the faux haughty tone. The hardworking staff here at Spoiler Alerts has noticed that the usual suspects are braying very loudly because some Harvard student organization said some really stupid things about the recent Hamas attacks on Israel. Many august personages find these student statements objectionable. I mean, it's pretty serious. National political figures like Larry Summers and Ted Cruz and Seth Moulton are weighing in. He putters on with the tut-tutting, are we all misguided and unsophisticated to care, to even care, to take it seriously? And also, wasn't it always ever thus? These are just some small voices. And yet I did a search for campus protests, and they're everywhere, just about every campus, not just the Ivy League or Tufts, where Dresner teaches. Some were fine, a bunch were fine. I mean, it's free speech. State your opinion. Agreeable, disagreeable, free speech flourishes. But some of the sentiments are horrible. Some are deluded. This from North Carolina. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Gathered on the library steps at UNC, a large group of UNC students for justice in Palestine held what they called a day of resistance rally. We are out here to support Palestine and to support the Palestinian resistance. The group would not say if they were for Hamas or supporting terrorism, but their flyer had a paraglider on it, which Hamas used in recent attacks in Israel. We are so horrible for showing a paraglider. What about their jets? Israeli jets have killed thousands and thousands of thousands of Palestinians, but that's okay. NBC4 Washington had their own report. We are seeing students clash at universities across the country. Here at George Mason University, students of Palestinian descent held a rally today. From the river to the sea! From the river to the sea! Now, the chant you just heard was omnipresent in these protests. I'll read from the ADL's description of from the river to the sea. What does this mean? This chant can be understood as a call for a Palestinian state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, territory that includes the state of Israel, implying the dismantling of the Jewish state. Indeed, this rallying cry has long been used by the anti-Israel terrorist organizations such as Hamas and the PFLP, which seek Israel's destruction through violent means. Okay, I understand that is in fact what many Palestinians believe and committed revolutionaries hold those views at what makes them revolutionaries. I guess it's in Dresner's words, wise to ignore the sincerity of the expression if they are expressed on a college campus, like the one he teaches on. Why then, you wonder, does he even do his job? I don't know. I understand the left is the left, but the left is far from fringe. 
after 9-11, which was a heinous, murderous attack on American soil, just about no one in America engaged in these sort of sentiments or arguments. When a heinous, murderous attack on Israeli soil occurs, I wouldn't expect to see the same kind of restraint in America, but I might have expected the quick expression of glee to be, I don't know, a little more muted or strategic among high-status individuals. Warning against war crimes, advocating for humanitarian outcomes, that is fine. That's why we have protests. Well, we also have protests, I suppose, to countenance things we don't like. But I know pro-Palestinian protesters are pro-Palestinian. Many, maybe most, actually do want to dismantle Israel. It does not surprise me, just like in the same way in the 60s, I wasn't around, but when I read about it, it didn't surprise me that there was a small cadre of pro-Viet Cong activists on college campuses then. But from the river to the sea, that chant is everywhere. And pro-Hamas statements, not exactly the outlier. This was a clip of a pro-Palestinian protester at Florida Atlantic University as covered by the CBS Miami affiliate. Palestinians... Hamas, they're, they're, they're fighting a resistance towards occupation and genocide and ethnic cleansing. The statement was made by a young woman who unreservedly gave her name. It was May Antar. Maybe she didn't realize what she was saying about Hamas. But then again, I looked up May Antar. She's a reporter for Illinois Public Media, so maybe she should know. The content of the sentiment, Hamas is fighting the resistant, it is as unconscionable as saying Al-Qaeda raises a number of valid critiques of U.S. foreign policies. You can say it in America, I'll defend your right to say it, but being known as a person who says it, I think, would have more social costs than it seems to have in 2023. It's not true that every committed leftist also has such strong commitments to Hamas or the elimination of Israel. Certain members of the Democratic Socialists of America who are in Congress have left the organization. Jamal Bowman let it be known that he has let his membership lapse. I guess that's a passive-aggressive statement. Michigan Congressman Shri Tendar quit the DSA and did so with, I would say, nearly perfect clarity. Absolutely. DSA failed to recognize what Sunday's, the weekend's attack meant. Uh, It was clearly an act of terrorism. Calling it anything else would be denying the of the people of Israel, the families, uh, the elderly who were uh, abducted, uh, the 40 or so children were found deheaded. And this is a clear act of terrorism. And every one of us must denounce uh, such a horrific attack. Tender was in bad stead with his local chapter of the DSA after he escorted Indian President Modi during his visit to Washington, D.C., but his renouncing of the organization overall, specifically for its anti-Israel stance, that was a model of ethics. Tandar says that it's important to be morally right about the work he does as an elected official. If that means paying a political price, fine, but the whole world needs to call out Hamas on what they've done to Israel. He could not, in this interview I saw on Forbes, he could not tell his fellow Michigan representative and DSA member Rashida Tlaib what to do, but he did articulate his own principles. As Eric Leritz, a committed leftist, wisely comments on all of this in a recent New York Magazine column, 
A left that refuses to condemn mass murder is doomed. Yes. And a left that tells you to ignore the countenancing of mass murder or tries to turn it around on you as if you're an unsophisticated for actually caring about holding, yeah, even college students at top universities to standards. Well, that movement seems to be intent on torching its own credibility. On the show today, it's a mini twig. You probably noticed that this, the top of the show, is rather long. But what am I going to start with? Giving out lobsters and then end on the to the river to the sea? But first, back in the Obama administration, Dr. Rajiv Shah was in charge of USAD and tasked with directing taxpayer dollars to countries in crisis. Now he runs the Rockefeller Foundation, and he's out with a new book titled Big Bets, how large-scale change really happens, in which he proposes the idea that when you decide to solve a problem as opposed to just making progress, you're more likely to succeed. I'm going to challenge that theory a little bit. Rajiv Shah, up next. Rajiv Shah, Dr. Rajiv Shah, I might call him Raj during this interview, is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Prior to that, he worked in the Obama administration as the administrator for USAID, which is sort of a government version of the Rockefeller Foundation. He worked for the Gates Foundation before that. And he was instrumental in uh, helping to solve some of the problems (laughs) with COVID-19. He's out now with a book called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. Tell me and identify, as you do early on in the book, what's the aspiration trap? Well, the aspiration trap, uh, and I wrote the book because of the aspiration trap. I feel like often when we try to make large-scale social change happen, create more equity and less inequity, fight racial injustice, address global poverty, hunger, pandemics, we think, okay, you're doing good, so doing good enough is fine. And you, you sort of do what you can and feel good about it and move on. And to me, that's the aspiration trap. That's not trying hard enough to actually solve the biggest problems we face. And I feel like through a unique set of circumstances that I never expected when I was young, I've gotten to work with Bill and Melinda Gates, with President Obama and Hillary Clinton, with leaders around the world and local leaders in some really tough parts of Afghanistan and and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Northern India. And I've seen people take a different approach. I've seen people say, you know what, we can solve this problem. How are we gonna vaccinate every single child on the planet and wipe out vaccine preventable disease? How are we gonna turn the tide on an Ebola pandemic in West Africa so it doesn't escape that geography and reach our shores in the United States when everybody's predicting it will? Or how are we going to actually fight hunger in the aftermath of a food, fuel, and financial crisis and put a security blanket under 100, 200 million people to prevent further violence, conflict, and instability? And because I've seen some things work, I wanted to write a book that was about aiming high when it came to tackling the biggest, toughest challenges we face. So, I take that there is a component, not just of the book, Big Bets, but also uh, of your life as a public figure and someone who advocates for safe funding, that you are of the mindset that you, even if 
um, an Overton window type mindset that you have to ask for more than you even think you're going to get, but that is the way to maximize what you do get. I don't want to mischaracterize your thinking about that, but is that generally true? I think that's absolutely right. So if you if you say our goal is to vaccinate every child on the planet and we move the needle from 50% or 60% of kids getting vaccinated to 80 or 85, we obviously haven't met our goal. But over 20 years, 980 million immunizations and 16 million lives saved. And those 16 million children are, you know, are the future in many of these communities across the planet. So, and I think if you, if you started by saying, well, we're just going to do what we can do instead of taking that big, bold goal and making that your singular objective, you would not get anywhere near that kind of result. Yeah. So I read the Gates Foundation report and others like it, but I always read the Gates Foundation report every year and I'm blown away with how much they've done, how much you did uh, to help them do this. And to me, it's inspirational. But the tone of it in recent years is not just, look, we've done a lot, but of course there's still much else to do. The tone of it, maybe the report itself, the coverage of the report in places like The Guardian is a bit despairing is a bit, and I think that this has infected so much of our public ambition, is a bit doomerish. Two-part question. Have you been picking up on that lately? And is that, if you have, is that a consequence of having these lofty ambitions that even you know we're not going to be able to hit? Well, I do think there's a bit of skepticism and pessimism these days in the general landscape of people working to fight hunger around the world, to fight poverty around the world, to fight climate change around the world. And the reason is over really the highlight was kind of from 2000 to 2015, we made tremendous progress in all these indicators. Hunger went from 14% of the global population to seven. Child deaths went from 11 million child deaths a year to 5 million child deaths a year. And then frankly, because of our populist politics and the world sort of fragment fragmenting, we stopped fighting as hard for these objectives. And then COVID hit and we've had the most inequitable recovery coming out of the COVID crisis that you can imagine. So today, 50 countries are facing a debt crisis. I was just in Kenya, 70 cents on the dollar, their public budget goes to pay off debt to China, Europe and the US. And what's left pays for healthcare and education and the rest for their people. So this is a crisis that we're facing. And it is important in moments of crisis to maintain the optimism, because frankly, especially political leaders, but the biggest things we've done have always been in the context of seeing a crisis as an opportunity. And that's one of the reasons I I hope the book helps people be more optimistic about what's possible. On the show, I went over a lot of the accomplishments of the Gates Foundation. You do some of that in the book. Some of the countries with clean water and sanitation have basically the problems been eliminated. You want to, you talked about immunization and uh, hunger. You want to highlight one or two amazing points of progress that might be a little deeper into the weeds. And then I'll get to my question. Sure. Well, I, I would just say if if you I, I think the immunization story is important and I dedicate two chapters in the book to it because it's both about setting the goal that we're going to immunize every child on the planet. And frankly, it was about restructuring the way we finance global efforts like uh, global immunization and coming up with a new instrument like a social impact bond. This one was called the International Finance Facility for Immunization. And those creative financial solutions Uh, really transformed the supply base uh, on a global basis for vaccines for poor kids. 
and the ability of 70 countries to invest more in hitting targets that were far more aspirational. So the reason I go into that is the learning is if we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to address hunger at scale, if we're going to turn around the current crisis in debt and interest rate payments that are crushing economies, we have to use those kinds of public-private innovative financing solutions that can feel very technical, but actually should offer us a lot of hope because they're fresh, innovative, and they're transformational. Right. So I'll read you one, you know this, but my audience should know that I just looked up learning poverty globally and by region. This is a chart. The share of children at the end of primary age below minimum reading efficiency. So it was a problem where 20% of the people were not in this, 20% of the children were not in this category in, say, East Asia and the Pacific in 2015 when started. And now the projection for 2022 would be it's 45%, that just one region that went up from in Latin America and the Caribbean from 50% to 79%. Uh, there are all these amazing, the sanitation, you know, the sanitation figures going from who has clean water somewhere around 20 something percent for the world to something around 60% of the world. I say, wow, amazing, amazing, amazing. And yet the Gates, and I know you don't work for Gates, but like I said, I see this mindset. It, the future of progress halfway, this is the title of the report, halfway into the sustainable development goals era it's time to change our approach. Third paragraph in. Seven years in, the world is on track to achieve almost none of the goals, but failure is not inevitable if we collectively challenge our assumptions about how global progress is achieved. You just talked about setting goals so high that even if you go don't get there, you guarantee progress. But the tone of this report is it, it would instill despair. That seems to be a consequence of having such high and lofty goals that you regard achievement as failure. Isn't there a cost to that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, in in fact, I, I kind of disagree with that assessment. I think if you look at, at from 20, uh, if you look from 2000 onward, the level of progress was quite extraordinary. And if you took those trend lines, which is what we did, I was an, in the Obama administration when we crafted the sustainable development goals and got 200 countries around the world to sign on to the basic idea that you can bring basic health care to every child, that you can ensure that a very minimal level of people on this planet are going malnourished uh, in terms of total calories in a world that is abundant in food and, and calorie production. Uh, these are solvable problems, mm -hmm. but they do require political will, technical sophistication and innovative new solutions, and a real deep desire to measure results. And frankly, before these goals existed, before 2000, the first version of these were called the Millennium Development Goals. Before these goals existed, there was very little measurement that actually tracked global progress on these things. So the reason we can have this debate now is we set goals, we set quantitative targets. They are ambitious and they should be because the ability to bring dignity to every community on the planet is the path to security and optimization of our future. And we've done it in the past. We rebuilt Western Europe. We transformed the East Asian economies you just made reference to in the 60s and 70s with real investment. We moved a billion people off the brink of hunger and starvation through a green revolution in uh, South Asia and Latin America based on seeds and new technologies that came out of the Rockefeller Foundation back in that time. And today we're seeking to reach a billion people who live in the dark, who don't have simple electricity and therefore are mired and stuck in a low productivity 
type of poverty by using new renewable technologies that don't didn't exist 10 years ago, that we are already reaching millions of people with solar panels, mini grids, artificial intelligence for remote energy management. These are the kinds of solutions that make these goals possible. And so it's good to say, hey, we've slowed down. Coming out of COVID, we are going backwards in the world. We got to turn that around. And that's why we bring leaders together to do that. I don't know. I don't know if we're saying different things. I mean, I'm as I think I'm as optimistic as you. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Part of the initiative is to advocate for one percent of GDP, the wealthy countries in the world, to pledge or give one percent of GDP to such projects in the developing world. So I want to ask you about that ask, but is there anything uh, else you want to add to it so the listeners understand what exactly the ask is? Yeah, it, it, this was a, it came out of a, a set of pledges about 15 years ago, actually, to, to move about 0.7% of GDP through official development assistance. And, uh, and it turns out some countries met that mark. And in the last few years, the rates of giving have actually gone down because countries have redirected those resources to deal with refugees in in their own uh, countries, in Europe, in mm -hmm. the United States, and elsewhere. So we need to reinvigorate this spirit of global cooperation and do it at a time when we're facing a climate crisis that's making these challenges more uh, difficult, but also you know hitting us at home even harder. And that's a big part of what the Rockefeller Foundation tries to do. And so setting the number at 1% will, you think, get us above the 0.7%? Well, when you set, uh, so I'm not as familiar with uh, how to think about 1% these days. The, the way that now that we know what it takes to fight climate change at scale, all the official estimates suggest that you need anywhere from two to $4 trillion of annual investment in building green and renewable infrastructure everywhere in the planet. Right. And then if you back out kind of rich countries, you end up somewhere between one and 2%. And some of that is public sector and some of that is private sector. So the bottom line is it would be a huge accomplishment to have 1% of global GDP committed to helping countries accelerate a just energy transition and a just climate transition. It would help save the rest of us and our planet. And frankly, while it sounds like a lot, it's still just 1%. You know, it's, it's actually, we did 2% in order to support the Marshall Plan and rebuild Western Europe after World War II. And there have been times in our history where we've come together and made these commitments to each other. And we're in that kind of moment right now. Right. So that seems good. It is good. I'd like for it to happen. But 1% of the US GDP is GDP's 20, $25 trillion. So 1% would be, you know, let's say a quarter of a trillion dollars, $250 billion. Sounds like a lot, is a lot. But then again, you're like, oh, the United States is a rich country. I just looked up Elon Musk's uh, net worth. It's literally $250 billion. So it's the same amount. But when you say the 1%, I wonder what is the rhetorical or activating uh, of the mind purpose of that if if there's, I mean, if it's also true that, oh, well, we're talking about the government giving and maybe your tax dollars, but public-private partnerships. So someone hearing that might say, all right, so the private partnership will take me off the hook for some sort of public funding. What should the regular citizen do with that 1% figure? Does it ask them to do anything? Well, the first thing it asks them to do is be aware. And the second is to advocate. So the one campaign, which was created by Bono and a, 
and a bunch of other extraordinarily committed leaders uh, basically went into communities in middle America, on the coasts, all over the country and said, hey, listen, how much do you think we give for foreign aid? And people would say 15%, 20%, it's way too high, it should go down. And they'd say, well, what if I told you it was actually you know, less than 1% and for less than 1%, we wiped out an AIDS crisis that was killing millions of people. We keep 22 million people alive every year on antiretrovirals that would otherwise be devastating. We've prevented pandemics like the one in Ebola in uh, Western Africa that would have otherwise hit our shores. We've moved 100 million people out of hunger. Where they were would have undoubtedly led to more migration, more conflict, and more strife that would have required military intervention. And by the way, we've put tens of millions of girls in school. And we know that educating girls is the most important thing to building safer and more prosperous communities over the long run, not tomorrow, but over the long run. Now, how do you feel about foreign aid? And people would say, we're doing less than 1%. We should at least do 5%, 10%, you know? (laughs) And I, and I've had that conversation and seen those videos. That's a little too much. (laughs) Yeah. That's what people say. Now, obviously (laughs) you wouldn't get there, uh, but it shows you, you know, when I, I led the Haiti earthquake and there's a chapter in the book on this big global effort to support Haiti in its time of extraordinary tragedy and need in 2010. And what the truth is, more American families gave to the Haiti earthquake that year than watched the Super Bowl. And, yeah. you know, a lot of it was just $10 by text to a text thread we had set up to raise some, some funds for it. But it shows you that Americans want to be on the side of right, that we understand our moral standing in the world, that we know that when we project our values and not just our power, our military power, we're building, we know instinctively that we're, we're being American, we're building the kind of safe, prosperous uh, world that we want to have. And we know it costs money to do and willing to pay for it if it's done with a focus on measuring results with a high view towards leverage and efficiency. And it's about big, meaningful goals, which is, which is what a big bet is. I heard an interview you did a few years ago with uh, Andy Slavitt, and you talked, your conceptualization of these basic ideas was talking about taking big risks. You've repackaged that in the book as taking big bets. Why is that the better way to frame it? Bets versus risks. Because bets have upsides. You know what I mean? The upside- Risks, right? They include risks, and I write about taking risks and even going first at taking some risks in order to do this. But- you know, we we made a big bet in the beginning of the Obama administration that we could stitch together a global coalition and fight hunger. And, and that was important because these hunger crises, these food crises in countries were literally causing political upheaval and conflict and migration. And we succeeded over time at helping 100 million people move to a safer place in terms of food security. And we saw a commensurate reduction in the number of episodes of conflict, violence, and migration in those specific regions. And we call that effort Feed the Future. That's the upside. you know. And so if you just talk about the risk, well, the risk is our money can get wasted. That can be managed, but it's a risk. The risk is you can do all the right things and you know, external events wipe out your ability to be successful, like COVID, for example. Uh, but, but there's an upside. And big bets allow you to understand and see that why do we make a, a bet in any other part of society or life? It's because you're excited about the upside. I want more people to be excited about the upside. So the last thing I'll do is not even a question. It's just while I have you, a plea for me as a citizen and a journalist, just I, I do think everyone in your world should emphasize optimism and progress a lot more than they have. And these 
notations about totally redirecting our efforts and failing to meet our goals, I think it has a caustic undermining effect that contributes to general doomerism. You know what works in terms of fundraising. So you do things to maximize the amount of money you have to do good in the world. But that is my two cents uh, as an observer of these things. So that's it. Hey, can I re- react to that? Yeah. <laughs> Mike, I think you're 100% right. I wrote this book because I want young people in particular to pick it up and feel like uh, not just can they be optimistic about being the generation that ends climate change, that ends energy poverty, that tackles large-scale hunger at scale and that prevents the next set of pandemics, but I wanted them to have the tools and the stories to help them be even more confident in themselves to pursue these efforts with the kind of optimism and determination that you just described. And, yeah, empirically optimistic. Yeah. You're an yeah. empiricist at heart. Exactly. I would add to that. Yeah. There's <laughs> exactly. such a better argument for optimism than despair, I would say. Absolutely. Rajiv Shah, Dr. Rajiv Shah, is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. He was the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, from 2010 to 2015. And his book is titled Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, and not just the spiel, and Antoine Tig, our name for a 21-day period from the Old English. This is going to be a bit of a mini twig. I just did one three weeks ago, and we have been doing them every six weeks, I guess. I suppose that's a double, Antoine Tig, in which I will correct mistakes. Mary Van Ravensway, her real name doesn't matter. Don't tell me if it's not. Mary Van Ravensway wrote in about another's name and said that we misidentified the attorney general in our show notes. The man's name is not Merritt Garland. It's Merrick Garland, though there is a certain symmetry to Merritt Garland, Garland being a wreath of achievement and Merritt being, well, there are Merritt badges, another outward symbol of achievement. So thank you. But that's it for the corrections. As for the announcements, so you know, I will often say, hey, go to Pesca Plus and subscribe. And in fact, on October 30th, we're doing a Zoom trivia meetup for everyone who is, uh, who cares to, who is a subscriber to the Pesca Plus tier of podcasts, subscribe.mikepesca.com and you also get bonus episodes, long episodes. And I don't say that as a commercial or just as a commercial and mention subscribe.mikepesca.com for remunerative purposes. I do so to inform my reporting on the next piece of feedback that I got. There are many ways to get in touch with us here at The Gist. You can email us at thegist at mikepesca.com. There's a place on the mikepesca.com webpage to give us some feedback. Reddit, certainly do enjoy our Reddit page if you're a Redditor. But what about the reviews? 
that people post on Apple Podcasts. These come in handy. And so many have been nice. I haven't plugged this recently, but we get a lot of good ones. But then on October 5th, in reaction to the interview I did with Zucker Abrams and lack of the other Zucker, but the creators of Airplane for their book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, this feller writes... L. Pat writes, I think it's L. Pat. surely you do research, or maybe it's more like, surely you do research, Airplane was a scene-for-scene, line-for-line ripoff of the 1957 film Zero Hour. How Mike Pesca didn't know this and went on to fawn over the writers is a dereliction of someone's duty. Didn't know Fawn? No, no, I know Fawn, but I knew. What I do is long interviews, and sometimes if you're a Pesca Plus subscriber, I'll give you a bonus, but a lot of times I'll just spare you, and some of the time, it's somewhere in between. There's not even, there's even too much for the bonus, we've done a lot of bonuses, or, you know... We have professional editors here. Their names are Joel and Corey. They said, yeah, it was a good segment. It was all good parts of the interview would benefit from being 20 minutes instead of 30. So I bring you some of, didn't know it, I bring you some of the colloquy between me and Zucker Abrams and lack of other Zucker. The parallel that I'm aware of, of Zero Hour being such a template for a very, very different movie, is George Lucas took a couple World War II fighter movies, like The Dam Busters and The Bridges of Tokyo Re, and he really, almost shot for shot, replayed them with X-Wing fighters and TIE fighters in a small movie, uh, not as big as Airplane, it was called Star Wars. And I don't know if you could have achieved, from what I understand, it was uh, zero hour for you was inspiration and source, but I think it might be, and I can't quite articulate it, but it might've been something more. It might be something with comedy needs this spine and this backbone and this realism, and you could just tap into zero hour for that and hang the ornaments of comedy around it. And without zero hour, probably would have been a lot harder. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. I don't know, especially back then. I think in later years, in retrospect, after Top Secret kind of tanked at the box office, that we looked back at Airplane and figured out that as much as perhaps even more than or certainly as much as the jokes was the story, the three act, well-written story that Arthur Haley had uh written for for zero hour and which includes you know a guy at the beginning who has a problem that he has to overcome in order to get the girl back and then he so i'm not going to play we talked for about seven minutes and trust me when i say we talked about zero hour for many an hour but, you know, I do want to thank you, El Packy Pat, for giving me five stars, even though you said that, you know, someone derelicted their duty or had their duty derelicted out from under them. But now is the time where I give a lobster, and I'm on that page, and if you shared a care review, I would certainly read it. I'm on that page where so many people have given me five-star reviews. I mean, there's a four-star review called Not What It Was. I like this dude a lot, but the show's not what it was before the ridiculous canceling. Okay, so what is the best review that I want to cite? One is a good one. Great, fun words. Love the show. Love the wordplay. I like that. Tis pithy. Very good interviewer. 
Awesome. Informative, insightful, reasonable. I like the one who says his politics are left of center, but he is honest when discussing all subjects. I, I don't know if that person is right of center or just is left of center and is assuring others that even those more left than me might like it. All very good. All very satisfying. But the award is going to go to Nodalout. Nodalout. Headline, good podcast. And you gave me five stars. Good podcast. Might apply a four or even a three-star review. Five stars. And it says, this show is what on the media used to be over 10 years ago. It does a good job of taking stories currently in the news and gives as close to an objective description of what is actually happening with political perspectives removed. First of all, I applaud your use of objective description. When I worked for On The Media 10 years ago, we talked a lot about objectivity. It wasn't the dirty word that it is today. And I just like the idea of me carrying on the traditions of uh, the forge that I was, the kiln that I was fired in or not fired from. So that actually did my heart good. And it is a lot of what I do. Um, much of the content on this show and many a spiel is really media criticism. And if someone is hearing that, note out, and someone is saying that, it heartens me greatly. I read that and I said, we have got to get this guy a lobstar. Why? What is it? It's the award for best listener, emailer, podcast reviewer, interactor of the Antoine Twig. And you know a lot. You are the lobstar of this Antoine Tig. And that's it for the show. Corey War is the producer and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. Want to advertise? Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Peru, G Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. You'd better tell the captain we've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. 